Welcome to the podcast. I am Joe Posnanski, and with me, the ever delightful Ellen Adair. Ellen, welcome. Thank you for having me, Joe. You are welcome, and very well done. I thought I'm just that- here to fulfill the promise of the opening song. That's well, really my main function. Well, and you bring an actor's grace to the words, which oh, well, which you. which Mike uh, so patently does not. Um, we are joined today. Look at this. I mean, the thing, the great thing about the way the podcast has gone is now it's not enough to have two people talking about nonsense. We bring amazing guests on here to also talk nonsense, which is great. And uh, we couldn't have a better nonsense talker today than the incredible Keith Law. Keith, welcome. Thank you. Woo-hoo. Thanks for having me. You're welcome, Keith. God, it's great to have you. We, we we will say this for the first time of many, I suspect. Uh, Keith has a new book that has come out called The Inside Game, Bad Call, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. It is excellent and amazing and available wherever you can get books in, in this uh, world. And how's that going? How is how's the early weeks of, uh, of your book being out? I know the response has been great, but the reviews have been, I think, even more positive than for my first book, Smart Baseball, which I had no, you know, you just don't know, right? You write, you've written several books and you write a book and you think, well, I hope I did okay. I hope people like this. I hope I got stuff right. That's always my biggest thing, right? Is sure. One of, especially this, where I was delving into behavioral economics and I haven't taken an economic class in a, an extremely long time. So <laughs> you know, I was kind of getting back into it and learning about new things so that I could put them in the book. And so far, all the feedback's been really good. I don't know a lot about sales in the early going. No, I just know and, book sales are down generally yes, for everybody. Yes. But, but so far, so good. Well, I mean, look, it, it's it's a bad break to have the book come out. I mean, the, it's... We're in the middle of nothing but bad breaks, but it's a bad break because obviously you would be out promoting the book, uh, doing events, doing various uh, things. I know you have done some online events, right? You, in fact, a couple of cool ones, no? Yeah, I did one with Sean Doolittle through Politics and Prose, which um, they sold. You had to buy a book to be able to watch the event, and they told me they sold over 150 books, which was Excellent. great. Excellent, yes. And then did one through Midtown Scholar in Harrisburg, and I done I have done in-person events at both of those stores before that were really fun. And Midtown Scholar, I think actually still has a few signed copies for sale. I sent them signed book plates so they could um, so they could ship those out. So if you buy a book from Midtown Scholar, you will also get a book plate signed by me that you can attach to the book wherever you want. I guess you well, can put it over the title if you decide the title isn't good. You could. You could you could you could just put the Keith Law game that make it just they just cover inside you if you want. Yes. Yeah. You could It's you a could pretty good title though. It avoids the Ellen Adair title problem, which my titles I always want them to be like fifteen words long, which I, oh, yes. I think is maybe frowned upon. I don't know. Well, you could be like Fiona Apple, right? And just have an entire poem as your album title, right? <laughs> she had like a sixty word album title at one point. Yeah, you could you yeah. could do that. No, the inside not, game I is I can't pull that off. No, it's a game is excellent. And it's it really is terrific. And and I do highly recommend it. I, I was lucky enough to get an early copy of it. I don't know if my uh if my uh you know words about the book made it on the book or on the website, but I that I actually uh was able to uh, was lucky enough to be able to say some nice words uh, about the book after getting uh, an early copy, and it is it's terrific, and it is a little bit. Uh, let's let's talk about this for just a minute because 
it is a departure for you from your first book. It is it is sort of delving more in that. I mean, I, I think you know, sort of that thinking fast, uh, maybe a little bit of Freakonomics. Well, how, mm-hmm. how how have you described the book when you when you talk about it? I mean, those books come up for sure. Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman was absolutely a, an inspiration for the book, and I cite it often within the book. But when I tried to do kind of an elevator pitch, I say you could look at it as a book about cognitive psychology or behavioral economics explained through baseball stories, or you could look at it as a book that explains baseball stories, baseball mistakes and bad decisions using cognitive psychology and behavioral economics. So if you want to learn about the latter subject, I have these baseball examples, I think make it accessible and hopefully fun and humorous to read about. Or if you're just a baseball fan and want to know, you know, what were the angels thinking when they gave Albert Pujols a $11 billion, 15 year (laughs) contract. Well, I talk a little bit about that and what, what things might've gone wrong and how you could maybe apply some of this stuff at work or in your personal financial life or whatever. Or if you just, again, it's just fun baseball stories. And ultimately that's what made the book something I could write too, is that once I get riffing on a good baseball story, especially because I know a lot of the people involved for the more contemporary ones, I could um, then I can go for a while. Then I can really write. And then what's always slowed me down is, okay, now it's time to get serious and spend some time in um, academic research papers, go through journal articles to make sure I'm accurately explaining the cognitive biases or illusions, and also try to get at the history of who identified these. I always find it fascinating. These are ideas that now are pretty widely accepted, but 30 or 40 years ago, they either hadn't even been named or people had started talking about them, but they were considered totally heretical in economic circles. When I, my, my, I graduated from college in 94. We talked about almost none of this in economics. Class. I mean, by, part of my major was economics, and there were only two that I discuss in the book that I absolutely remember learning about in my economics classes in college, which shows you how new some of this stuff is. It's so much fun. It really is. And Ellen has not had a chance yet uh, to get to the book, but- but uh, I did it, order a copy on, on bookshop.org. It's just, oh, things take a long time to arrive these days. They do, yes. but thank you for supporting independent bookstores. Bookshop.org is awesome. It's where I'm sending everybody. That's where Ellen, what is Ellen is all about. And it is, it is a book, I think, Ellen, you will find- it is a book written like for you. Like it's the, it's, it's the sort of book where, um, you know, it takes, I mean, it really builds around sort of some of the negative things that happen in baseball and dives into why, what, what is the thought, you know, the Pujols is one of them, but there are numerous others. Why, why managers uh, will, will make some of the moves that they seem to make and and so on and so on. And, um, and it's really, it's really fun because, because, you know, we do talk all the time about these mistakes and what people always say is, you know, at least I used to hear this all the time. People would say like an owner who, who didn't, you know, spend a lot of money isn't trying to win, right? Like you simplify every thing, like every mistake you simplify to, to the, to the nth degree. It's like somehow it came down to will or it came down to, and it never does. It's, it really does come down to, these these you know very very human uh, qualities that we have that that sometimes push us in the wrong direction. Yeah, it's I mean it sounds so fascinating to me. Of course, I would love to delve more into the psychology behind the way that baseball the games are played and the organizations are run because it might give me 
uh, a little bit more sympathy and a little bit less fury, I guess. Um, but I, you I don't. Know, and by the way, you are not going to read Keith's book and come up with more sympathy and less fury. That is, oh really? That oh. is not going to. That is not going to happen. Your your fury, you won't gain fury, but you'll you'll just be mad at different things. Would you say, Keith? I mean, would you say that you'll just come away going, yeah, that they should have not fallen for that trap there? Yeah, there's gonna there's a lot of that. Right, the, <laughs> it's it's what's the Hagrid line from the Harry Potter movies? Oh, I shouldn't have said that. What's well, a yeah. lot of? Yeah, he shouldn't have done that. Over and over. Like I don't think Bob Brenly is going to endorse my book. Would you agree? Bob Brenly is definitely not going to endorse your book. But I but I'd say this about Bob Brenly just on on behalf of, and this is why I've never understood. Like like. Look, nobody likes being criticized, I and mean, we we don't no. like getting bad reviews. We, nobody likes being criticized. I've always thought, though, that Bob Brenly, like among other people, because Bob Brenly, for, for those who don't know, of course, he was the manager of the 2001 um, Diamondbacks who won the World Series, and then and then really uh, didn't get another manager's job after that and, and feels some bitterness about that and all that. And I understand. I do. I understand all of that. Uh, on the other hand, I, I just think you kind of already won right i mean like i don't know where i don't know where the like you won the world series you know with it, it's it's just enjoy life i i don't under i i feels to me like you that people get very offended and angry and and waste a lot of their own energy on that when when they kind of have it pretty okay to me i mean bob Brenly's not you know he's 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 broadcasting baseball it's not bad it's not a bad life for bob Brenly. No, it's I have I was kind of pleasantly surprised writing the book that most of the time when I talk to people who were involved in or around some of these decisions, we're fine talking about it. Most people in baseball understand, especially if you're evaluating players, if your job's anywhere around that scouting, player development, GM, they understand you're going to get stuff wrong. The only person I wanted to talk to about a bad decision who said he wouldn't talk to me, and this was through somebody else. So who knows what the message was? John Hart didn't want to talk about the decision not to trade Jared Wright and Bartolo Colon for Pedro Martinez. Yeah. And and I actually thought I tried to play devil's advocate to myself and put what I thought his view might have been that I'm trading away six years of each of these prospects for one essentially one year of Pedro Martinez and a year when they, you know, Pedro Martinez might have been the difference between them winning a world series, not winning a world series. I want, I just wanted his words. It would have been so much more powerful. I think if he'd wanted to talk to me, but for whatever reason he didn't, that's fine. That's absolutely is right. Most people in the industry, I find like talking about their mistakes though, because they either just have come to terms with the fact that we're all going to make mistakes, evaluating hundreds or thousands of players. And sometimes it's fun. I, I think it's fun to look back at, things I've gotten wrong or to talk to people about things they've gotten wrong. Oh, what if I taken this player instead of that player? Get that a lot from scouting directors talking specifically about the draft. And I find those conversations endlessly fascinating because also you can think about what if you, what if you drafted the, you know, what if you drafted Houston Astros took a kid who never got out of a ball six picks before the angels took Mike Trout. Oh, that changes baseball history right there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, um, you know, I, I it's funny because I saw something the other day that it just what everything you were saying reminds me so much of this because I do think um, that it is sort of enjoyable to go back in some ways, look at the mistakes you made, look at what you've learned, look how you would never do them again, you know, on and on. But one of the things I saw the other day, and and this blew my mind. It's not baseball; it's basketball, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But with with the last dance going on, uh, one of the sort of villains of the last dance uh, was Jerry Krause, uh, who did actually have a, a baseball background as well. He was yep. a Scouted, he was a baseball right? scout as well, exactly. Um, but I guess you know nobody liked Jerry Krause and kind of you know I, I haven't I have not actually seen the last dance yet, so uh, I have I, I don't know. But but what I took yeah, away he from, comes off as the villain for he sure. Comes off as the villain, right? I can verify. Yes. Yeah. So one of the things that it seemed to, to be saying was that he deserves little to no credit for what the Bulls did, right? Because he he you know he didn't draft Jordan and and maybe he had one or two good drafts or whatever. But but here's here's what I saw. So somebody on Twitter listed off like how bad Jerry Krause has been. Um and they listed off like all of his drafts and literally like like screamed at him essentially as loud as you can make Twitter, which is, you know, it's already at a high volume at all times. Um <laughs> But as loud as you can make it, screamed at him because each draft, other than the year he drafted uh, Scottie Pippen and uh, and Horace Grant, he drafted both those the same year, maybe. Other than that year, there was always a better player like available later than the one that you could do that to literally yes. anybody. everybody. Oh yes. my gosh! Yes, <laughs> there is there is never there's there's only there's only one best player every year. And and that one best player sometimes goes number one overall, but sometimes goes in the thirteenth round, sometimes goes in the second round, sometimes goes in, you know late in the first. And you know, I I remember writing a column uh, years ago. This will this will really please Alan. Um, mm-hmm. The Royals had a terrible stretch uh, of drafting, and I'm not talking about drafting where they drafted players who they could have drafted better players. I'm talking about they drafted players that didn't ever make it. Never, right. you know, a couple of them didn't even, you know, sign. I mean, it was, it was a bad run. And one year they drafted somebody who did not make it when the pick clearly should have been in retrospect, Chase Otley. Ah, it was, okay. they had taken him shortly before Chase Otley. And I wrote a column and I'll never forget this. I wrote a column Basically saying that they screwed up because not they didn't take Chase Utley and you know Chase Utley you know turned out to be so good and 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 I had a GM who I won't name but but somebody who who I think is is brilliant called me up and said don't ever do that don't don't like if 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 you if the story is that the Royals were choosing between Chase Utley and this other guy and they chose the other guy and they can give you the reasons why. Yeah, that's fine. You can criticize mm-hmm. them all you want. They might never have even thought about Chase Utley. There's like, there's no, you can't look later in a round and say, oh, they should have picked that guy because, because that's not how the draft works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I never have done that again. That like, that was, I thought that was very, very good advice. It's interesting. That draft, I just pulled up that draft. And then I have a funny sort of add on to that too. So yeah. They took Mike Stadolka, who did not make the big leagues. That's they right. They picked him fourth. The Chase Utley was taken 15th. So I'm 15th. going to guess that's 2000s before I worked in the industry. So I don't know specifically. I'm going to guess Chase Utley never crossed their minds. Probably not. The industry basically said he was the 15th best player in the draft or maybe less. He wasn't on their radar at pick four. That doesn't happen. Right. It's very, very rare that, that the other guys they were probably looking at. The closest guy to where they picked, Adrian Gonzalez went first overall. He was derided. I mean, people mocked the Marlins, and he's turned out to be the second best player in the draft, basically, second yep. or third. Um, the, Rocco Baldelli was taken sixth 
and had a nice little career, obviously, before this mitochondrial disorder ended his career early. Nobody else taken between first and 15th did anything, did a right. damn thing in the majors. And, you know, it's funny because I was going to say to your point you made sort of along the way too, the year that that Mike Trout draft, back to that Mike Trout draft, which I could talk about forever. Sure. Um, hell, I saw Mike Trout that year and I said he was good. I had him ranked higher than he was actually taken, which I take as a small victory, except he should have been first on my board, obviously. <laughs> and I did not get that right at all. You can you can take a small. Steven Strasburg was yeah a little bit just a little bit. So I don't know how much you guys remember about that draft year, but Steven Strasburg was the guy before that anybody played a game at all that spring. Steven Strasburg was the first pick in the draft. We all knew it was funny because I remember talking a little bit to Mike Rizzo, just a little bit, and he sort of hemmed and hawed a little bit. But it's like especially if you know Mike, he's not turning down the best player in the draft, who's also the most famous player in the draft. Right, they picked first. We all knew who they were taking. The big thing was who goes second, right? So they take Strasburg first. They had a second unprotected pick at 10. So they had to get somebody who would agree beforehand to a deal. They took Drew Storen, who had a perfectly cromulent big league career, right? Sure. If they, but you could absolutely do the hindsight trick and say, well, they should have taken Mike Trout, right? Mike Trout would have taken 10th overall pick money for oh, sure. sure. He went 25th. That was probably a difference of, I don't know, a million dollars or so then. Of course he would have taken it. Do you go back and say the Nationals, who took the best player on the board at pick one, the thing everybody would have done, the thing the Angels would have done if they'd picked first. Oh, yeah. Eddie Bain told me Steven Strasburg was ahead of Trout on our board. Could you still say, well, they did? They made a mistake. They didn't take Mike Trout. It's not fair to do that because basically nobody had Mike Trout that high on their board. No. I think the Angels might have had him higher than anybody. And even they didn't have him first, or I think even second on their own board. I think ahead of Trout, they had maybe as many as a half dozen players sure. who were just never going to get to them. And the highest I really know for sure that Trout could have gone was actually 13th to Oakland, still behind that Nationals pick. So we can talk about how, yeah, Mike Trout, in hindsight, should have gone higher. And that means the industry was just light on their evaluations of him. But to call out a specific team and say, well, they should have taken Trout instead you can only basically do that with, I think, with Oakland because they've said many times, even Billy Bean has said, he was the other guy. We had it yeah. down to those two guys and we picked the wrong one. Right, right. And and the reason, uh, you know, I, I had a great conversation with uh, uh, David, their GM uh, over there, and, and he said the reason we didn't pick Trout is probably because we relied too much on the on – the, on the very uh, objective data that we, and we didn't put enough subjectivity in it. We didn't, we, we didn't put enough art into our scouting on that. I mean, he has literally told me that, which I think is, is fascinating. One other fascinating point before we move on uh, about that particular draft is the Royals had uh, the 13th pick or the 12th pick in that draft. And they ended up picking Aaron Crow, yep. uh, which, you know, that didn't work out great. And they never considered picking trout, but Everybody has a regret story. And the great regret story with the Royals is that J.J. Piccolo, the, the, who I think but then was scouting director, but is, you know, he's assistant GM and number mm-hmm. two guy to Dayton Moore and all that. He grew up in a town like 20 minutes away yeah, from my He's trout. from there. Yep. <laughs> he's, he's from there and he was going to go see Trout. He'd heard nothing but amazing things. And then something happened where like he was going to go up, but it looked like it was going to rain and he thought the game might be canceled. So he just didn't go. So we never actually saw Mike Trout. So yeah, oh, that would the hurt. Worst. It was like that the would hurt. most miserable <laughs> spring. 
I didn't see Trout until we all knew who he was. He wasn't a, a complete nobody coming into the spring. I couldn't see him until two days before Mother's Day, I think, because it would not stop raining. Yeah, yeah. And so his season was abbreviated, and a lot of times his coach was pretty good. His coach is actually still the coach at Millville High School, same guy. And Trout like goes back every year to talk to the players too, which is, I mean, what a thing, right? Imagine you're just a, at this public high school in New Jersey. It's yeah, we got a big leaguer coming in to talk to you guys. Who is oh, that's God. my Trout. And he and the coach said, um, coach was great about sending out info, but often it would rain the day before the game, and they'd still have to cancel the game because the game the field would be just totally unplayable. So I don't know how many games Mike actually played that spring, but it wasn't a lot. And he was like I've always tried to sort of cut teams a little slack to you just couldn't see him that much as opposed to like if you were a kid in california where it's whatever they play from you know february 1st well into may the season is so long and it's california eventually there'll be good weather it was just the most miserable spring all the years i've lived in the northeast it was the worst weather we've ever had for scouting incredible incredible ellen I was I was going to ask you because uh, obviously what Keith's sort of you know Keith has has made his his bones if you will um, really nitty gritty scouting like in there he's 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 out there doing doing scouts work he's worked for a club he's he he focuses on that what where does you where do you stand because you are actually uh, doing a, a new podcast that has a little scouting <laughs> feel to it. See how I, yes. see how I turned oh, that? Did you that like was, that? That was beautiful. Um, so yes. we, yes, my husband and I have started a podcast called Take Me Into the Ball Game because that's the only place that you can see the ball game these days. Um, and we sure. are uh, grading baseball movies on the 20 to 80 scouting scale. So I'm aware that scouting is maybe the wrong word for it because these are mostly movies that came out a long time ago, uh, the ones that we have already recorded. But it seemed like kind of the fun way rather than to just have a, oh, we're going to talk about this movie for two to seven hours um, to kind of come (laughs) up with different categories. So, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, could you you have seen yourself as a scout, I mean, with your love of baseball, what do you think? Could you have, like, you know, if this if this acting thing hadn't happened, could you have seen yourself as a I scout? I mean, I'm an actor, so ultimately I can see myself doing a lot of things. I think I would need a lot more knowledge in order to be a good scout, but in this alternate reality where I was a scout, then I assume I would have put in the time to becoming good at evaluating players, you know, putting in the time to making pretend. Keith, how do you do that? How do you how do you how do you become a scout? Uh, the best way to become a scout in the first place is generally to know somebody who works in the industry. You get sort of tabbed often. Right. Like a lo- most of the scouts I know, not all, but most of the scouts I know played a little bit in the minors or even played in college and got pulled from those ranks by somebody who scouted them or they played in an organization. It was clear they weren't going to work out. So, but one of their coaches said, Hey, this guy would make a really good scout someday. And so you sort of get plucked, you know, you get your, your, uh, it's all right. I'm here for it. Harry Potter references here, (laughs) but you know, you, you, you know, you get your Hogwarts letter in the mail one day and it's like, you know, yes, yeah, you're a scout Harry. So, you know, that it's, there's a lot of that. Um, or now more recently I've seen more guys getting taken their college level coaches often at smaller colleges 
get to know a scout who's covering that area. And that connection leads to a job opportunity. Sometimes they might even scout a little bit part-time just sort of as a trial period. But then you that just gets you the job as a scout. Right. It, it takes a lot of time. I mean, speaking of my own experience, you know, I think about things I wrote about players 10 or 15 years ago, probably even five years ago, and sort of cringe a little bit because I absolutely know more. Because I think a huge part of the value of scouting, it's the number of players you've seen and the things you've started to identify, maybe even subconsciously, about players. You go see a player and suddenly your brain is creating all these patterns and thinking about, well, this guy reminds me of certain yeah. other players I've seen. I still That still happens to me. And then the struggle is to try to put it into words to write about it too. Why did I like this player so much? Who did he remind me of? And in what way? Was it his swing or his body or or you know his delivery or something about a particular pitch? Like I'm trying to put it, to make it seem more evidence-based as opposed to just, I don't know, I got a feeling. Which that feeling may be, real but it's so much more convincing i think if you can put a fact-based argument behind it sure sure i love that and and i've heard scouts talk about that all the time and that's why i think ellen i don't know it sounds like the deck might be stacked against me if i needed to be a former player (laughs) there are a couple of women who scout now which was not true five years ago or it's certainly not 10 years ago but there are a couple i know seattle's uh, area scout in the four corners is a woman um there was one who worked for the Yankees who actually just passed away very young of cancer, but she had scouted for them for a couple of years. But we've, there are a few, there are too few, but the fact that that number is no longer zero, I at least take as a very positive sign because this has been such a, a particularly such a white male dominated industry for so long. And we're starting to see hints of diversity and it's just, it's so hard to break through, but the fact that a few, women and people of color have broken through. It's probably been more, there have been more people of color. They're just underrepresented. Yeah. These numbers seem to be creeping up. I at least take as a positive sign because there are now other paths. There are people who just come out of good colleges and maybe have some kind of relevant, you know, some data science background and they come in through the analytics department and then transition to scouting. I believe the scouting director for the Milwaukee Brewers actually started out in the R and D department and then, transitioned over over the period of like two or three years and then got promoted to actually run their amateur scouting department, which I believe is a first, yeah, but well, it won't be the last. It's super interesting because it's, it's, it seems to me like obviously if you have familiarity with the game, that helps, but actually what you need is a really good eye. So what I sort of, the immediate parallel that I drew in my own life is actually casting directors. Like casting directors are the scouts for actors and a lot of them have a theater background, sure. but ultimately they learn that their greater skill is that they can identify talent really quickly. Yeah, well, I, I look, I do think you need a good eye. I think Keith makes a great point about the more players you see, the more that you can sort of connect things in your mind. I think that's that's huge. I But Mike and I have talked about this on the show several times before. I mean, the fact that there really haven't been uh, many uh, and until recently any women scouting and that minorities have been so unrep- underrepresented is is a real it's it's i mean there we can talk about all the reasons why it's it's bad but it's also baseball has used like 50% of like the brain power available to <laughs> to to improve the game and 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 i just think that's a you know that's a real I mean, look everybody knows that no matter how good a scout you are uh, 
there are things you're going to miss and things you're not going to see. And, and, you know, while, while Keith, your point is a hundred percent right about, uh, trout, the truth of the matter is that within a year, basically of Mike Trout getting drafted, he was basically the best player in baseball, yep. you know, a year and a half. And so you, you can't miss that like that. Like, I mean, you can, uh, and there are all the reasons that you mentioned the bad weather, the fact he was a Northeast guy, uh, you know, the fact that he kind of came on late, all of these things play into it. Um, but there's no question that scouting like everything else, uh, is a long way from being at, at, at what it can be. And, and I just feels to me like opening up the, the world, not only, you know, to women and, uh, people of, of color and, and all that, just opening up world to all sorts of different mindsets, I think is, is, is good and, and can only make the game better. There's a fair amount of actually now academic research on how diversity, even the sort of visual diversity by gender or uh, or ethnic background or sexual orientation, whatever, just that simple kind of diversity increases creativity in teams. That almost this idea that people you get away from a bunch of people who look exactly alike and thus think exactly alike. And so they may all get along. They may seem to have good chemistry, but actually they're not generating a lot of ideas because diversity, you don't have diversity of opinions because you don't have diversity of people. So I'm all in favor of that. The idea of front offices becoming far less white male, straight white male than they've been will almost certainly make the sport better as a whole. And I think make the individual decisions that come out of teams better. And I, will say this is now just a hypothesis, but the fact that R&D departments in baseball are generally more diverse anyway, because it's just, do you have a data science background? You have a master's or PhD in one of these highly specific fields? Great. We don't care what you look like. We don't care if you ever played. We don't care if you could, if you, you know, washed out a little league and that was the end of it. Can you do the job? It's much more meritocratic than on the scouting side, which just at least getting in the door was more a function of who you know. And so now the fact that those people are coming into R&D, having a pretty strong voice in, as a department at least, in decisions throughout baseball operations, and now sometimes transitioning from there to other departments, uh, I think is definitely a positive. It's probably why we've seen the pace of change within the sport, at least at the team level, start to accelerate in the last five years or so versus I don't know, the 10 plus years before that, just that I've been involved in the sport. Yeah, absolutely. Well, all I, all I know is Alan should be a scout. That's Thanks, basically Jim. what I'm Great. trying yes. to say. I think we've, I think we've agreed on this. We've settled on this. <laughs> you know, the only woman scout that, that, uh, that, that was around a few years ago was Amy Adams in trouble with the curve. Oh, don't that you was... dare talk about that movie. <laughs> I mean, Do I'll probably have to talk movie. about that Alan, movie at some it? point. So I would love to know why you don't want me to talk about it. It's the worst it's the worst. baseball movie. It's, it's, okay, I have a question for you. The worst. Have you oh, seen none of it is right. The Babe. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah, it's not as bad as The Babe. Is that the John Goodman movie? Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I have not. It, okay. Yeah, it's, All right. It's not as bad as The Babe. All it's right. not. Yeah. Really? I, the Babe is worse than Trouble with the Curve. I mean, I all say- I have to say is that I didn't realize how good my life was before I had ever not seen The Babe. Like, I didn't realize how good I had it, and then I saw you- The Babe. But did you watch the original Babe Ruth? I have story? not watched the original Babe Ruth story. Uh, I just haven't had the stomach for it. Yeah. No, no, you need to do that. I mean, so it's going to happen eventually. I'm just, I'm building my strength back up, basically. You know, the Babe, <laughs> well, it was like, you know, Giardia or something that just like went <laughs> through my system. And I just have to like, you know, drink chicken soup of other baseball movies for a little while. Yeah, don't, I can get don't. My strength back up. 
don't see trouble with the curve while you're while you're like uh you know convalescing okay yeah. all right yeah no that that will not work i will send I actually you find the- it it's it's a good hate watch because it's so bad it's it it's not even just that it's like badly acted and badly written and all of that oh amy they got, adams is bad she's bad it's <gasps> it's the worst amy adams performance i've ever seen oh, but no, it's no. not fair to her because it is such a poorly written movie the script it sucked. Is, it's so bad it's, yeah. It's really bad. But here's the thing I would say about it. it and this is what makes it way better than The Babe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote like a 4,000-word review of it, which I will send to you, Ellen. Oh. Um, uh, I wrote like a 4,000-word review on The Trouble with the Curve. I, I could not have done that for The Babe. I mean, like The, the Babe <laughs> the babe has no – like whatever redeeming no quality – there. there. Well, there's, it's not even fun to hate. It's that bad. Right. It's like it's it's so incredibly terrible. And I'm not sure it's worth the, worse than the Babe Ruth story. But I but I'm going to wait for Ellen and and Eric to uh, to Ugh. give me full give us full marks on that. The really unfortunate thing is that we watched that movie. So initially, this was just there's no baseball. We should watch baseball movies because sure. I hadn't seen plenty of them because I grew up without a television and didn't really have yes. one until 2010. So um, there are plenty of baseball movies, classic baseball movies that I haven't seen. And so unfortunately, this was in the time before we had decided the podcast, which means that if we want to podcast about it, I will have to watch the movie again. Oh, no. Um, no, no, no. I mean, I just might not be able to. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, yeah, for sure we is- will. We will at some point do trouble with the curve. Yeah, no, and you'll. I think you'll get a very big kick out of doing a podcast on it. Yeah, the the, the watching will be painful. I, yeah, I will not. There's a I lot will. of meat to pick off the bones. There, I mean, the it's- fact that the five tool player is that kid. Oh my like, god, that it's, kid is not. That's so not what funny. five five tool players look like. You know, Michelangelo statue of David, right? <laughs> not this short pudgy clearly unathletic actor they picked for that particular role. and it's just the be i mean they oh my god there's so much about that movie that's wrong oh, there is, I, I would leave you with this with trouble with the curve um the kid that they were looking at the pudgy kid that they were looking at uh that is sort of the focus of the scouting uh department um was the number one overall pick in the in the draft the so he is the number one pick um and as the movie will tell you, he can't hit a curveball. So that is all you need to know, oh, really, God. about. Oh, yeah. God. As if no one had <laughs> ever thrown this kid a curveball through age 18. That's that not he... how it works. All right. Okay. I'll You'll enjoy it. Yeah. You'll enjoy it, Alan. Yeah. Believe me, after The Babe, it's a light watch. I will say that. Okay. The Babe is – because The Babe is like – the babe is a constant assault on your soul. I mean, it's it's it, really is. it is somebody with a baseball bat just hitting you again and again. It is it is the it is the Robert De Niro scene from uh, from um, uh, the the one uh, the uh, Untouchables. It is that scene, <laughs> but to you as the as the viewer, basically. So yeah, all right. So here's my question for you. We're about to have our draft, which is going to be super fun and sort of semi based on Keith's new book, The Inside Game. Um, but before we do that, I do want to ask you both your thoughts on this. So here we are. It is today is Monday, May 4th, as we are doing this. And of course, no baseball and no plans, uh, for baseball, but lots of talk and lots of sort of early, uh, I don't know, scrambling about as people try to figure out a way to get the season going. 
don't know if they'll be successful. Don't know what's going to happen. So I will ask you both to uh, look into your crystal ball as you uh, do not, you know, things you do not have and, and tell me what's going to happen. Are we going to play baseball? Are we going to have a season? Are we, is there going to be fans in the crowd in the stands? Um, and there's no way for you to know this. So I'm not holding you to this. This is not something I will replay in, in, in two months to laugh at you. Uh, but I am really curious what you guys think. So I'll, let's start with you, Alan. What what do you think is going to happen? I'm feeling optimistic that we will see fanless baseball at some point this year. I feel like a lot of the prognostication recently has been that maybe we could see it for the 4th of July, which would be nice, um, sort of, or starting late June, early July, something like that. Even if it's any sure. amount of baseball, I will take you know, if it's of course. 40 games, I will take it. And I'm, yeah, optimistic that that's going to happen. But I don't think that we're going to see fans in the stadiums. All right. So you are, you are at this point, if you could make a prediction, you would predict some version of the baseball season with no fans in the stands. Yes. Excellent. Keith? Yes, I think there's way too much of a financial incentive, especially for owners. I think there's way too much political sentiment behind having some sort of season. Um, and now having talked to Dr. Paul Sachs on my podcast a week and a half, week ago, sure. something like that, a while ago. And obviously Dr. Fauci, when he's allowed out of his cage and they let him <laughs> speak to the press, um, he seems optimistic that they'll be able to do it. I think there are significant hurdles. I think there's zero chance we'll see fans out there. And I think now that um, I paid very close attention to the situation in Italy because I have a lot of cousins there. One of my cousins is a doctor. She works in a COVID-19 hospital wow. now. Um, fortunately, she has not gotten it. Or if she has, she's never shown any symptoms. Um, so I've really paid attention there. And they're starting to reopen today, actually. Not to the extent of sports necessarily, but starting to reopen some businesses. I think a lot of those factors will come into play, but that they'll try to get games going by early July or so, You know, which would mean some practice sessions, You know, spring training by another name, in late June, there are still a lot of logistical things to figure out. Like, what do you do with the minor leagues? Because uh, you can't just, right, you have to have some players ready because right. guys get hurt. Um, and also what kind of testing is in place? There has to be a lot more testing available because it's not just players. It's the thing, I, I'm like a broken record on this, but if people think, oh, it's just you just get the players together. That's players, coaches, training staff, stadium operations people, all of whom will essentially be together in clubhouses. That's a pretty confined space. That is a yeah. public gathering without fans. It's 50 people easily. And so that's got to that brings a lot of logistical challenges that I'm sure Major League Baseball's thought through. I think the people on the outside who are like, bring back baseball are maybe not entirely thinking through it. And it's going to take more time for them to have the testing available and figure out exactly what it's going to look like. Because I think the worst case scenario of all is they bring baseball back and someone gets sick mm -hmm. and then exactly right. 20 people get sick. Yeah. No, I, I, that's, I agree with both of you. I, I think that everything I'm hearing and seeing around the game points me to believe that they do want to get this thing going uh, at some point around the 4th of July. 4th of July seems like a good, a good starting point anyway. And, and I think that they will do everything in their power to do that. But I also agree with with what you just said, and I think that the worst case scenario is not skipping the baseball season. That's a terrible scenario, but that's not the worst case scenario. Right. The worst case scenario is starting baseball up and then having to shut it down. Yeah, that that is 
devastating beyond uh, anything. Yeah. I mean, that is that is it's emotionally devastating. It's fi- financially devastating. I mean, it is it is a crusher to the game, especially because football is sitting there getting ready to go. Like you know, oh, there there will be football. There'll be football. There will and be football. That's you, like opening the yeah. churches. <laughs> so, so you know, you don't want to be the one that's starting up and then shutting it down and then watching football, you know, take over. I mean, it's I, I just I just think that's really bad. So let's let's look at it positively, though. Let's say they get this this the enough testing, enough contact tracing, enough uh, of the you know they they find a really good anti bodies uh tests so that people will know uh mm-hmm. if they've had it let's say we get through a lot of this stuff done which we which you know they're working on at night and day so so let's say all that happens and baseball does start up uh in early july and it goes we, we they, they they've got it worked out so that you know with with the obvious possibility of a few snafus here and there that it actually can go what would you we'll start with you alan what would you like the season to look like like what would if once they're playing, there won't be fans. We we know all the situation. Do you want like a regular season uh, where you know you end up with you know teams in the playoffs and then you try to do a playoffs, or do you want some sort of big round tournament? Do you want some sort of way to create like a celebration for the game? Like what would you like to see? out of this baseball season? I think it completely depends on how much baseball we have. I think regardless, I think I would like a slightly different playoff structure this year because it's always going to be a different season. And there's always going to be, even in people's minds, a sort of little asterisk next to whomever wins the championship. And so I feel like the most fun thing to do would be to really embrace that and have a a real uh, some sort of playoff structure. I think like Jeff Passan had suggested where basically all of the teams that lose play a consolation bracket so that you have, since it's a shortened season, you have all of the teams playing. And then you could also kind of rank the teams really from number one to number 30. And I think that'd be fun. And you know, all the fan bases would be able to be involved through the end of whenever it is that we have baseball. Okay. All right. Keith, what do you think? I do agree. I agree with Ellen on the playoff structure thing, especially. I think they're just going to have to get creative and yeah. recognize it's just, it's not a normal season. I, I, a couple people have asked me, and I know Joe, one of our colleagues, Megan Montero, got asked this in her Q&A thing sure. last week. Like, are people still going to take the records from this ser- season seriously? And to which I'm kind of like, who cares, right? right. If we get baseball right. back. And yeah, you know what? If we play a 60-game season, someone might hit 400. That yeah. could entirely happen, right? Or someone's going to post an ERA that's hilarious. Yeah, uh, I on want the low that side, though. Not hilarious on the high I side. want that. Oh, I totally want that. Wouldn't it be interesting? No one's going to be like, "Well, that's the new 400 hitter. It's the first guy to hit 400." <laughs> Someone will say that because there'll be some twit out there who who just runs with that. We're all going to know it's not the same thing. Can't we just enjoy it for what yeah. it is? Like that would be my attitude. Is I'd love to see someone finish this season some shortened season hitting 402 because why not we'll take all of it all the weirdness i'm in for anything weird and a weird playoff structure and like i don't want to see the playoff structure changed in a typical season but this year sure do some kind of euro style play in tournament whatever especially if teams are all playing at two or three sites 
have them do a bunch of one-on-one, you know, single game elimination, boom, 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 boom. We're all watching the same game at the same time. And we're on that health site of Twitter, all talking about it. Those are fun. The wildcard games tend to be a lot of fun for me on Twitter because basically we're all watching the same thing at the same time. And the conversation Mm -hmm. is just fun. It's not, you know, you don't get a lot of trolling. You don't, in most of the timeline, we're all talking about the same thing. Like that's really enjoyable. Baseball could do stuff like that this year because why not? It's uh, the season is already not normal. Just embrace it. I yeah, have. I, go ahead. Oh, this is. I just have another question since I have this opportunity to ask a question of Keith Law. <clears throat> Given the financial considerations of the season, if we have a shortened season, what do you think happens with teams bringing up their best prospects? Do you think that maybe we just don't see any of them because the teams are going to try to save money that way? Yeah, I, it's funny. Somebody asked me that on the radio last week a little bit. Oh, I promise and, I wasn't listening. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. No, because I didn't have a, I, I had not actually thought much about it before this, but now I've had the chance to think about it a little bit. It, maybe this is just me being a total optimist. But I want to believe this means we won't see so much service time manipulation that teams will just be like, screw it, it's 60 games, right? If we're just better off bringing um, Luis Roberts a bad example because he's already under contract, but a player like that, who was he was ready for the majors anyway. Yeah. Just bring him up. Just bring him up because having him over 60 games versus the, you know, the next best replacement you know, the extra whatever, 15 games, it's a quarter of a season. You're not having this guy. You're playing an inferior player for a quarter of a season just to bump back his his uh, free agency. Or maybe, I don't know how they would work at half a season to try to keep him from being a super two. I bet you teams that think they have any chance at all of contention will say, screw it, just call him up. Nice. I, not everybody. But I mean, I'm hoping that's what happens. Because also, again, adding to the fun of it, what if we just get more rookies than normal? That would be tremendous, actually, if we have more new names and some of them will go off. They won't all be great, but some of them will. And then that just adds to the excitement of a of a, you know a weird shortened baseball season. So I'm trying to stay optimistic. I haven't actually asked a lot of executives this yet because they just don't know. They don't even know what the season's going to look like. No one really knows how service time will be handled in an 80-game season. You, if you play the whole season or 60, whatever, you play the whole season, you'll get a year of service time. That's about all that I think is set in stone right now. What I don't know is what happens to the guy who gets called up like halfway through it. And I think until GMs know that, they probably won't, they don't really have an idea how they'll handle these guys. Yeah. Well, I, the thing to me is that a lot of that's those details, specific details, they'll have to be worked out. But I think everybody in baseball ought to view this season as completely different from anything that baseball's ever had done before. It's completely different. And it is sort of, you know, and and I think baseball is the opportunity to do this. It is an opportunity to remind people of, of the, you know, the place that baseball has played in, in American history and in America. And I think that this year should be, as best anybody can do it, a real celebration of the game. I mean, this is in, in some ways, you know, every business in a lot of ways is looking at what we're going through as a bit of a reset and in, you know, in often in very, very difficult and trying ways. Um, you know, this is, are we really going to, are restaurants really going to be the same after this? Yeah. There are shopping districts really going to be the same after this. I don't think anything is going to be the same exactly the way it was. I don't think the way we view the world will be the same the way, you know, for what it was before. And baseball is in one of those places where 
you know, it's it's its place in American history is one thing. It's place in where in America today is one thing. And how it, you know, how baseball handles this moment, I think is going to be utterly defining for the next, you know, forever. I mean, I, I think this is, this is a very, very big moment for baseball. So I would sure hate to see baseball either go conservatively or bicker about, you know, you, you see the stuff going on with the umpires. This is not the time for any of that. This is not the time for any of the bickering, not a time for any of the arguments about service time or any of those things. And, and, and I'm not to downplay the importance of those things, but this is a time where people are hungry, so hungry to, to see baseball. And, and I think that the game owes itself and owes the country the best version of, of the game as, as they can, as they can, you know, as much as they can provide it. And, and I hope they do. I really, really hope they do. And, and, you know, we, we can all point to moments in the, in the game's past when they have not risen to the occasion. Uh, but I think it's really important that they do this time. Agreed. That would be great. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. Agree. I agree with everything yeah. you just said. <laughs> we're all so hungry for it that we're all prepared to stay up until 1am this morning so that we can watch the uh, NC Dinos. That's who I'm rooting for anyway, because Aaron Altair is yeah. on their team. And I would love to see Aaron Altair turn it around. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so Aaron time for our draft. Uh, yeah, no, as soon as you brought up Aaron Hotel and wanting him to turn it around, it was like, all right, there's, there's no place for us to go, uh, with that. So, all right. So, uh, for our draft, um, we are drafting. So, uh, as mentioned, uh, Keith Law has a new book out, The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. So here's what I have uh, I have uh, asked of our uh, extraordinary panel. We are going to be drafting life lessons from baseball. Lessons we have learned from baseball. Obviously, Keith should have a little bit of an advantage in the draft. Um, but maybe not. You never know how these drafts are going to go. So life lessons from baseball. And Keith, as our guest, you have the first pick. Oh, my God. I have to think of something I learned from baseball. Don't take high school pitchers in the first round. Does that count as a life lesson from baseball? You know what? It, this is all going to come down to your creativity. Whether can you take, don't take high school pitchers in the first <laughs> round and make a life lesson out of that. If you can, I'm all for it. I will. Okay. I actually have a real one. I, I do have a real one from my career in baseball. Um, it is the, and this does actually tie into my book, although I promise I'm not, that was not a deliberate thing, but, one thing I've learned from God, what is this? This would be my 19th year in baseball of, of actually seeing players, right? Going to games and trying to evaluate players. Sure. Uh, 2002 was my first year doing it for the Blue Jays. And one thing I learned even fairly early was to not over trust my own eyes. Like I'll still remember there was a kid I saw on Cape Cod, Nathan Southard. I'm pretty sure he went to Tulane. And every time I went to see him, on the Cape that summer, he was just smoking line drives right back up the middle. And I was telling our, uh, one of our other scouts, senior scouts with the blue Jays too. I'm like, I don't know what it is. This kid hit like a buck 80 over the summer, except every time I was there, he was hitting the ball hard. And he joked, he's like, yeah, it's like you go in for a weekend to see a college player. He goes 12 for 10, right? You just see him do no wrong whatsoever. And it is 
even today, I'm still always trying to strike the right balance between when I've seen a player myself, what I've seen from him, what the data tell me, and especially what other scouts tell me too. And it's, there's no perfect answer, but I have understood that relying too much on any one source of information, particularly my own eyes, generally gets me into trouble. I may still be right. There were absolutely cases where I was right and all the other people I listened to were wrong and oh well, but I will make fewer mistakes if I try to gather more information and not just overtrust myself, which I definitely did early on. It was like, nope, this kid looks like he's a star. Well, turns out some of them were, more of them weren't. Love it. Very good pick. Thank you. Do not trust your own eyes. I, I think that is that is such a good lesson from baseball. But it's so baseball. interesting. I just, Ellen? I'm sorry. I know I'm the one who always makes this thing so long and I accept the guilt. But it's so interesting because in your earlier talking about uh, Mike Trout, kind of the reason that people didn't take him earlier was because they were just looking at the numbers and they were just trying to be, you know, super rational about it. And in a way, like they didn't trust their own eyes enough. So it's, yeah. There you go. That's it's, it's hard to know how much to trust your own eyes. It's, 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 it's but hard to it know. It is an excellent lesson. Um, and I, I personally, Joe, you said you felt like you were at a disadvantage, but I feel like I'm at an insane disadvantage um, being in this with the like two far, sm- smartest, funniest baseball writers alive. And I realize I almost combined those words into the word fart, which is hilarious, but <laughs> I didn't quite. Um, we are the two fartiest <laughs> baseball writers in 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 that, I mean, of that I cannot argue. I cannot argue. <laughs> anyway, um, so I decided that the only only real edge that I could have on uh, what baseball has taught me about my life is the my life part of that, rather than the baseball part of it. Um, so okay. I'm kind of kind of go with what baseball has taught me about my life as an actor. Um, and this is partly because I just feel like nothing is more like acting than baseball. It's probably just because those are my two favorite things, but that is a belief that I have. So my first lesson learned from baseball is, uh, that a team with defined roles, but where everybody gets their sort of moment to be in the spotlight is the most fun. And I think this is one of the things that I loved so much about baseball when I was a very young person, like, you know, three and four and fell in love with baseball, is that it was easier to understand for me because you could so easily tell what the roles of the players were. And then they would come up to bat and then you could have a moment to like look at their stats or, you know, when I was three, probably my dad would just tell me about them or my mom would tell me about them. And just kind of appreciate this particular player's contribution. And I feel like this is my favorite metaphor for a theatrical production or for a film set or something like that, because everybody has their particular role and they have to support the team, uh, the rest of the team, for the moment that it is like that person's time to be at bat. And... uh, I I feel like that is the most fun thing about acting and that is the thing that I miss most right now is like making art as part of a team and I really enjoy acting because it's an opportunity to watch other actors with like the best seats possible and then to get to play with them. So that's my first lesson. I like it. 
I like it. It's it's and it speaks to you. I'm, That's who you are. You want to be you want to be a part of the team. That's who true. you are. That's true. I may be bending these rules a little bit, <laughs> but that's the best thing about podcast drafts. Yeah. Well, it, clearly I have decided to take this in an entirely different direction. I've re, I I said, "Ah, life lessons from baseball." And then uh, I scribbled down literally like 57 different life lessons that I've got from baseball. So I have to choose from those and I'm not going to to do that. So I'm just going to read them off the top the way I have them. Uh, so my first life lesson from baseball uh, is my first pick. Uh, it's only worth trying to steal stuff if you can be successful 75 or 80% oh, of the time. Very good. Mm. So think think that's that's uh, that's my life lesson uh, from baseball. That's sort that's of what I was going for. basically the premise of the sting, right? I feel like that. <laughs> It is. It is the. Bondarp and Hooker don't do that unless they feel like there's an 80 percent chance they're going to be successful. Eighty percent. That's what I'm saying. If you could be successful stealing eighty percent of the time, yeah, do it. Otherwise, don't. You're only hurting the club. This has been the final episode of the podcast. (laughs) Kids out there. Okay. All right, Uh, Keith. uh, Your second pick. Oh, I have to do this again. Oh yeah, we have to. We're going to do three. We're going to do three rounds. Okay. Uh, yeah, and you know what? You, we don't have to go in order. I can. I can. I've got a lot of these. <laughs> just, Why don't you give, a, just, give another one before I have to go again? Let me think uh, of something like pithy and clever. To yeah, up. think of something pithy. I'll give you what one I will not plan on. Was not planning on using. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when someone yells, "I got it!" It's really best to let them get it. <laughs> I, I feel like that is. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's a, although although it is a tougher one to do when it's uh, time to get the check at the end of the meal. Right. Then, but I still think even at the Which end, we know you strangely love, <laughs> I love, I love the fight because I love winning that. But I actually think even at the end of the meal, if somebody gets it first, like that's possession. So I, I think, yeah, I'd say, yeah, when somebody else, I got it, get out of the way. That's, that's, that's the best, that's the best course of action for baseball. Keith, I can keep going. Do you? Do you I, got, have- I got. All right, so you got me thinking. Well, I'm just trying to figure out how to word this properly, but it sort of ties into my like extreme loathing of the sacrifice bunt. <laughs> okay, but it's sort of this idea that like people always. And I trust me, I grew up not thinking about the game the right way. I grew up listening to Phil Rizzuto announce Yankee games. Like he was obsessed with bunting because he was good at it himself too. It's probably right? another separate <laughs> lesson than that. But just this idea that in baseball, you know what, you only got. 27 outs. Why are you giving one away? This idea of thinking about any question like that, and it's kind of an economics question in its, in its own way, but like you figure out what's the thing that's scarcest, the most expensive or the hardest for you to get or the hardest for you to hold on to. Don't give those away, right? Understand what's the hardest thing to replace or the hardest thing to get in whatever it is you're looking at in life or business or whatever. And then you know, hold on to those. You should be valuing those more highly. And of course, in baseball, we think of it the opposite way, right? You scored a run. Okay, it doesn't matter. You advanced him another base. We don't think about that, about the thing that didn't happen. Yeah. You just gave away, you know, the other runs you might have scored if you hadn't bunted. No one thinks about that. That's actually probably two lessons in one, but especially <laughs> this idea that like, you know, you only get so many outs. That's the fixed quantity here. It comes up a lot when I talk about how I don't think this is like such a nerdy argument, but the wins above replacement is not additive. You can't say, well, you know, having two players worth four war each are the same as having one worth eight war. Roster, right. roster spots are really scarce. Yes. Yeah, they're less scarce this year, I guess. But 
you know, you only have so many of them to play with. If you can concentrate a lot of your value in more players, it just gives you more chances to get other good players on the roster. Like I thought that was pretty intuitive, but there are still, I still know people inside of baseball who don't really agree with that, who'd argue with me that they think it is more additive as opposed to like, you know, it's linear and not logarithmic for the math, math fiends in the audience. So that's kind of how I try to think about that, even in like sort of personal finance issues a lot. Well, it just so happens that I wrote down, so I will not use this one. I wrote down, don't give up outs cheaply. Time is the most precious thing we have. Yep. So, and that's what outs are. Outs in baseball are time. That's what it is. There's, they say no clock, but there is a clock. It's, it's the outs uh, clock. So, um, excellent pick. Excellent. A very excellent pick. Part of, part of my challenge with this is I was trying to think back, like, what are the things that my dad taught me about baseball? Ooh. And I and I I realized a few sort of slightly joking things that my dad said about the game of baseball. I'm like, yeah, but I don't know that the things that I believe about the game still make that true. Like I remember him saying, you see like sacrifice is so noble in baseball. Everybody like applauds the sacrifice fly. And yeah, it's like good if you advance the runners. Um, but I was kind of like, I don't know that that's the one that I want to pick. And I also remember him semi-jokingly saying baseball is a game of guilt regards the assigning of errors to various people. It's so true. It is true. And I was like, oh, yes. but I don't know that that's the lesson that I want to take. <laughs> that is a lesson. What do you mean? That is a great lesson. That is such a great lesson. Maybe. But I mean, if we only have three... Uh, three, if we're only doing three rounds, that's not going to be one of the top ones. All right. Well, here you go. It's your second pick. So my second pick is going to be um, always tinker with your pitches slash work on your swing slash watch the tape. Ah. Um, so I think it's very important to always be working on your craft, whether that's baseball or acting. And and I'm always thinking about finding new ways to study scripts or new things to focus on in scenes and I also think you've just got to watch yourself, um, especially if you want to be on camera. It's tough at first. Like the first times that you watch yourself work on camera, it's like any batter watching themselves spin all the way around in a strikeout or like a pitcher having to watch himself give up back-to-back homers. It's awful. But after a while, you get used to the way that you hate your face. (laughs) And then... You find that it's useful. So, yeah, you've got to see what you're doing. Nobody could hate your face. That is the most ridiculous Uh, thing ever. Oh, it's there are many things about my face that are very hateable to me. Um, Probably not to other people, but yeah. Don't don't hate your face, please. Just don't. I understand what you're saying, though. I did. It's I would never listen to this podcast, for example. Um, That is an excellent uh, pick. Always work, improve, make yourself better. I love it. with my second pick, I am going to uh, go with, because uh, I just wrote all these things down and I've never even looked back at them. Uh, I am going to go with, people will look at your batting average because people won't notice the walks. That is <sighs> that is my bit of wisdom. How about that? Like that's If that is not a baseball fortune cookie, I don't know what is. But it is true. People will look at uh, batting average because it is... It is shiny and, and uh, you know, it seems has a great history and it seems important and they will never notice all of the little things that you did uh, because they're not in the batting average. So, uh, so yeah, so you just, you live your life 
knowing that when other people look at you, they can look at your batting average. But when you look at yourself, you look at the on-base percentage. That's I think that's the way to live life. But that there are people who will look at your on-base percentage, that there are people in your life who will see you for your on-base percentage is, I think, also a truth. Well, that is true. When I say yeah. people, I mean critics is really what I'm oh, talking I about. Oh, I mean, yeah. yeah. The 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 yes. unwashed masses will well, look at your batting yeah. average. People will generally look at your batting average. That's what they'll that's what they'll generally see. And then uh but yes, you you would hope that the people around you that know you best uh will look at your on base percentage. You would hope. You would hope so. Keith, do people look at you for your batting average or your on base percentage? Um, I feel like people look at me for my height more than anything. <laughs> Not that's your batting average. That's what I'm talking about. That's it. Yeah, it's kind of like, well, first they have to look down, right? And then <laughs> and they can look at me. All right, Keith, you got your third and final pick. All right. Well, so it's kind of continue with what I was just talking about too, which is the the what if people don't often, and people, I'm including myself too. We don't often think about the what if. What what if we don't what if we don't take that high school pitcher in the first round right What if we didn't trade for make that particular trade What if we didn't bunt there What could have happened We're not good at that It's actually yeah. I mean I would say it's actually part of why despite the fact I know Joe you know this Alan you may not but I'm a huge board gamer I struggle yes. with chess I didn't know that. because chess there's so many what ifs and you have to correctly guess what your opponent's going to do which is not always easy for me to do and you have to be able to sort of visualize the board how the board may change two, three, four moves in the future, I guess maybe more. Yeah, I'm not good at that because that is hard for us to conceptualize the thing that hasn't happened or the thing could happen but didn't happen yet. And that's to me, I mean, that's just a hard part of making decisions while human. I've tried it while being anything else. (laughs) But I do think that that's something we should be more cognizant of, especially when you have time. You have the luxury of time to make a decision. Somebody asked me on a radio or podcasting the other day about bad decisions I've made in my own life. You know, the first house I ever bought was not a great financial decision, but I was so locked in on, got to get a house. I should own a house, throwing rent, throwing money away without actually considering what if I don't buy this house and what are the financial ramifications of this particular house, owning it, selling it, maintaining it. Funny thing, when you buy a house, you realize you're not done spending money, not by a long shot, as it turns out. Yeah. Yeah. No, not at all all the things you redo, all the things you have to do, just sell the house. So yeah, I didn't think that through. And then since then have bought other houses and done made better decisions, I think, and we'll be doing it again soon. And, and all of these things are going through my mind so that each time, hopefully I've learned something and make a better choice. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's excellent. I think we all, and you talk about this some uh, in the book, but we all think of decisions generally as binary decisions it works or it doesn't work and right. and so so you know and and look and i think you can you can fall on any number of sides with this so, i mean you you can see person who you know puts down a sacrifice bond to manager calls for it they score the run and the manager goes oh i made the right call as if there's no way that it would have worked the other way but by the same token, you it's you can look at exactly the opposite ways. A manager puts on a sacrifice bunt. It doesn't work. That doesn't mean that it would have worked had he swung away. You don't know. I mean, these are these are the what ifs are incredibly difficult, impossible, in fact, to uh, to fully digest. So I think that's uh, that is a great that's a great lesson for life. Alan, what do you think? 
oh, I think it's a wonderful lesson. And I do think I've been thinking a lot about this recently, that we will, you know, what we as human beings do is construct narratives. And so we will construct narratives about the life that we have led and the way that the world is and so on. And so we will look back at the way that something happened and we will see, oh, well, but this had to happen and then there was this. But all we're really doing is seeing the signposts that led us to the current moment, um, which I just think is really interesting. It is interesting. And it seems like, of course, inevitably, like I was going to be here and I was going to be doing this, but it's because you made those decisions along the way. It's a very good point. I'm maybe very obsessed actually with the what if, because it's a, I think it's a very, it's like the Stanislavski magic if it's the thing that's kind of the foundation of being an actor and imagining being somebody else is that kind of, oh, well, what if instead of being this person, I were this person. Speaking, so, of, speaking of bad baseball it. movies, I don't even know the name of it. I think it was with uh Maybe it was with Jim Belushi. I can't remember. Do you remember this movie, uh, either of you, where the guy like lived a miserable life and had become convinced that if he had hit the home run to win in his Little League game rather than striking out? Mr. Destiny? Is it Mr. Destiny? Is that what it was? And maybe that's not even what – I know there was something about Little League. Maybe it was he didn't make the catch or something. I can't remember what the Yeah, I think the, I think that's the one. I haven't seen it. I just remember because I was like in high school when it came out. Yeah, I saw it. It was, it was, I recall it being really bad, but it is definitely has to be on Ellen's list. A Jim Belushi movie wasn't good. You don't say. (laughs) By the way, I I did actually just watch because, you know, we're doing this, this, Joe, I don't know if you saw these things. They're doing like the best SNL related sports things. It was like Little Chocolate Donuts. That has to be on there, right? Yes. It definitely has to be on there. Particularly when he's, the fact that as Belushi is talking about the Little Chocolate Donuts, he has a lit cigarette in his hand. <laughs> supposed to be this world champion decathlete. And, and he's eating little chocolate donuts with a cigarette. It's just, it's 30 seconds of perfection. But of course, that's John Belushi, which is a whole different thing. So, yes. uh, although Jim Belushi, apparently a huge, huge Cubs fan. That's what I, you know, he, I, I, I believe he uh, is, I am told that it is legit Cub love, that he, it is not fake, phony celebrity baseball love i don't know if that's true i've never spoken with jim belushi but but i've heard that he's a legitimate cubs fan so we'll see that's just what i'm saying all right alan time for your third pick this is my third and final pick right yes it is okay well i was going to take you can't think and hit at the same time here ah, i love it um as a sort of counterpoint to the fact that you have to tink- tinker with your pitches, but then at, in the moment of performance, you have to not think about that and and just be present. However, I cannot give up the opportunity to draft something that I know Keith Law does not believe in. Okay. <laughs> and so I am going to take when you're hot, you're hot. When you're not, you're not. Wow. Wow. Um, hot hand. It's yes. fighting words. <laughs> and I I know that you don't believe in it, and uh, so I just couldn't resist. And it might not be true for baseball. I understand that it, it might just be random variance, and and probably is. Although for players like Reese Hoskins, for example, um, he is actually far more statistically likely to hit a home run the following day if he has hit a home run uh, the day before, and far more statistically likely to not hit a home run if he has not hit a home run before. So these kinds of things, these kinds of exceptions do exist. But it is definitely true for being an actor. 
Like sometimes you're just on and you're hitting Mm -hmm. every audition, even if you're not booking them, but you are booking some and other months you might do everything right. And like you might make your mind nice and clear before the audition and you go in and you do everything competently, but you know you're not quite connecting and you don't know why, maybe because you can't watch that tape later. And nothing gives me more of a personal balm of empathy than to watch a very good hitter or a, a very good pitcher have an off week or an off month or maybe like an off half season as long as I'm thinking about Reese Hoskins because I'm just like, I feel you. And and it, it also, I have to say, it gives me a lot of anxiety for them because I'm also like, I feel you. Like, why is it not working? I don't know, but it's not. But I certainly, I have those moments for myself um, as an actor and the fact that I can, I can at least perceive that narrative in uh in baseball is um yes i ultimately like comforting for me so all right keith keith you have at her just go ahead tear her apart oh geez i don't know no, you don't have to do that she's sam she's, too nice for that no I'm you not, are too actually. nice you are i don't care what people say <laughs> um no it's uh Here's the, here's the thing, I, and and I am you know statistically, and Keith writes quite a bit <clears throat> about the hot hand, and 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 others have obviously written about it as well, and and uh, uh, you know I I understand, but there is I find it hard to believe, not saying how this is going to come out in performance, but I find it hard to believe that when a player is hot. Uh, or at least, you know, statistically, the the things have fallen to the point where the player believes that he or she is hot. I find it hard to believe that doesn't boost confidence. I just, I don't, I'm not saying it's going to make them any more likely to do anything, and maybe that doesn't matter. Um, but it it feels to me like like there is there is something psychological to being hot, something that makes you a little bit better version of yourself. And and that's not to say that 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 I believe in in hot streaks or or any of that kind of thing. I just think that that some part of that to me feels underplayed because because I think psychologically there are factors involved. Well, I will say like the problem with the hot hand stuff in team sports is that it sort of dispenses with all the other players who are trying to get you out or prevent you from scoring but in sure. individual endeavors like i mean i don't know how much either of you guys read about the, the idea of the flow state but it's definitely when i first heard about that it totally applies to my own writing work yeah. there's no oh, question yeah. that there are days i can't really write as easily and i'm lucky i write pretty prolifically on most on most days but there are certainly some days sure. i just can't and then there's that thing where you get rolling for five minutes or 10 minutes. And before you know it, you've spent an hour writing. And I don't even know how I did that, but I just wrote 500 words or something in a short span of time because you got into that flow state. And the flow state is real. That is like not a, I don't, I think that's past the hypothetical stage. That is, there is actually evidence that that exists. You could certainly tie that to the hot hand. I think in an individual activity, nobody is actually trying to prevent me from writing. Well, maybe one of the kids now that everyone's here, but <laughs> right in, in the general case, nobody's actually trying to prevent me from getting work done. Yeah. All right, Alan, you, I, I think it's a great pick. That's, I'm just going to say, I, I like it. I like it a lot. All right. My third and final pick, I'm going to read a few of the ones that I'm not going to go with because uh, since I wrote all these down, I'm not going to waste them. 
Um, one bite of cotton candy is enough after a certain age. I think that's <laughs> very, very important. There's no reason to bat in the ninth if you've already won. I think that's a big life lesson. Mm. Um, there are more Sisto Lescano baseball cards than Tom Seaver baseball cards. I, I know that to be true. Uh, for those uh, who are interested, I wrote, uh, I am in the middle of doing another baseball series over at The Athletic where I am counting down the 60 greatest moments uh, in baseball history uh, as seen through my stupid eyes. And, and uh, today's... Uh, was uh, 1952 Tops creating the first modern baseball card. So if you want to check that out. Uh, put your ice cream in a helmet when you can, of course. That's obvious. Um, try to take advantage of all the 3-1 pitches in your life. I think that's a that's a big one. I think yes. people, people who watch baseball should spend more time, when they can, um, looking for 3-1 counts. Like, like they're like a lot of times we're just talking and the game kind of goes by and you're just, you're just enjoying, which is, which is the way it should be. But one of the cool things I always tell people who are really just kind of getting into baseball, you see a batter, a really good batter with a three, one count, predict a home run. You're because you will be right. You won't be right all the time. You won't be right even close to all the time, but every now and again, you will be right. Cause the three, one count is, is, is the one and, and, uh, and you'll look really smart for your friends. So, so just look for three, one counts in life. The one I'm going to go with is, uh, that most of us in life have warning track power and we should swing accordingly. I think that's sort of how I view my own life. I feel, uh, that I am always, uh, I am not going to, uh, win the game with, with home runs, but I can help the club if I, uh, focus my energies, uh, accordingly. So, so there you go. That's our draft. We, we shortened it a little bit because we got to get Keith out of here so he can do like his own show. You have yes. your own podcast. <laughs> so we want to do that. So we're going to go right to one last meaningless thing to end this meaningless thing. It's one last meaningless thing. Sports and we draft things we know, like how beaches are terrible places to go. No hot fruit for Michael, no Diet Coke for Joe. The podcast woe. It's one last woe. Keith, if you want to, you can you can join in and you don't have to. I will start uh I, I think I've mentioned a couple times on the podcast, but not enough, that Keith has a new book out called The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves. Uh, I've been looking at that page on, on Amazon just to so I can get the full title, and I'm noticing it's it's a Kindle. I have not purchased a Kindle version of this. I have, I have purchased the hardcover version, but I have not ordered. So it is offering me that I, that I can buy it with one click, but... When it's doing that, it's telling me which of of our um, uh, Kindles it will deliver it to. And it's saying, deliver to Heathcliff. That is literally the one that is up there, deliver to Heathcliff. And I don't have any idea. As I'm looking at this, I'm staring at this, going, who's Heathcliff? Why? Are you actually in Wuthering Heights? My daughter's has named her Kindle. After Heathcliff from Wuthering ah. Heights, so, <laughs> Your so, are so I just cool. 
That's I just, awesome. I, I just want to say that that I am looking at this and realizing that my daughter has named her Kindle after Heathcliff from Wuthering Heights. So there you go. That that could not be more meaningless, but I felt like I needed to share it. Ellen, it, your meaningless it's thing. Really excellent. Um, so you know, these days we're all we're all looking to the scientific community to do important research regarding the communicability of say contagion. So I just wanted to take this opportunity to point out that I discovered um, that apparently there have been multiple scientific studies on the veracity of the five second rule. Wow. That is, if you've dropped something on the ground, whether or not it's still safe to eat. Um, now, I've always been a believer that I can eat something that is dropped depending on the viscosity, Sure. partly because I've done that my whole life. So I figure I've been inoculated against whatever the floor juju is. But the viscosity is key. Like I'm not going to eat a spoonful of yogurt that no. has fallen on the floor or like a sauced piece of penne. But a Skittle, to me, that has always been the platonic ideal of a food that like that is fine. If I see a Skittle drop, I will still eat it also. It's a Skittle. Of course. But I always assumed that the five-second rule was just a cute thing and that pretty much whatever transfer of juju to food, that's going to happen basically immediately. So many early studies confirmed this, but more recent studies show that it does actually collect more bacteria over the course of time. Um, so according to a study at Aston University, and I quote, Time is a significant factor in the transfer of bacteria from a floor surface to a piece of food. And point two, the type of flooring has been dropped on. It has been dropped on has an effect with bacteria least likely to transfer from carpeted surfaces and most likely to transfer from laminate or tiled surfaces to moist foods, making contact for more than five seconds. So my real takeaway is. Uh, not only did somebody do this study, multiple people did this study. Many different scientists did a study to basically uh, debunk or prove the five-second rule, and I think that's delightful. That's a little meaningful, Alan. I'm not going to lie to you. That's, that's... I think it's t- – uh, no, no. I, I'm, I'm just saying that that if, if people will will like take from this a way to live their lives, and that's way too meaningful for this show, frankly. But. I mean, no, it's, it's not. It's not. I'm joking. It's. it's oh man, I was no. so disappointed. No. Uh, you, what, yes, quoting a study about how long a food is allowed to be on the floor. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 you've nailed the meaningless of it. No question. <sighs> okay, uh, what a relief. All right, Keith, do you have something meaningless for us? Yeah, I do. Well, if it's okay if I plug something else I wrote that wasn't a book, hopefully. Yeah. Um, so I also review board games for a couple of sites, including Case. Yes. And the one I reviewed last week is actually, I don't usually review a lot of party games, but there's this new game called Half Truth that I think comes out this week. And it's co-designed by Ken Jennings, the Jeopardy champion. Sure. And Richard Garfield, who designed Magic the Gathering, King of Tokyo, and a bunch of other successful games. I actually don't like most party games, but this one was kind of fun. Um, I also don't like most trivia games, but this one was also pretty fun for that. And I feel like you could probably play this over Zoom or whatever video conference with friends as well because of the design of the game. Really, as long as one person has it, you could pretty easily make this a a video conference type game. And it rewards some trivia knowledge, but a lot of it is just the random stuff that you're kind of guessing. They give you a, a question, six possible answers, only three of them are correct. And there's a little bit of some intricacy to the scoring, but basically the, as long as you get at least one right, you get all the points, but you can try to get more right for extra points as well. Oh. So there's a little betting, like push your luck type of element. And 
Uh, my partner and I played it with my daughter and we all liked it. My daughter just felt at a disadvantage because she's too young to know a lot of the stuff, but she liked it. And she liked the particularly like the betting mechanic that if she just got one, she could play it safe. But if she really felt like she knew one, like it was just something in her cultural uh, you know, purview that she could try to press her luck a little bit. So yeah, it's uh, probably one of the only party games. I'd say in all the years I've been writing them, writing these reviews for Paste, I think I've recommended two or three party games ever, and this should be one of them. Half truth. I like it. Yes, yeah, we are excellent. always we are always looking for a party game here at the house, as you all know. We are mm-hmm. uh, we we have tried many and enjoyed them, but always one. There's always one person who is like, eh, I don't know. You know, we have right. four. He has to like all four have to like it for us to play it. So we end up usually just playing Mildborn, the card game, over and over again. So, um, well, Keith, this was awesome. I cannot thank you enough. I think we got you out in time so you could do your own podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. And uh, remember, it's the Inside Game, uh, available uh, everywhere, and uh, and uh, support your independent bookstore. Ellen, as always, thank you. You're the best, Joe. Thank you so much.